Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Data. Chapter 17. England under Edward II. King Edward II, the first Prince of Wales, was 23 years old when his father died. There was a certain favourite of his, a young man from Gascony, named Piers Gavston, of whom his father had so much disapproved that he had ordered him out of England, and made his son swear by the side of his sickbed never to bring him back. But the prince no sooner found himself king than he broke his oath, as so many other princes and kings did. Oh, they were far too ready to take oaths, and sent for his dear friend immediately. Now, the same Gaveston was handsome enough, but was a reckless, insolent, audacious fellow. He was detested by the proud English lords, not only because he had such power over the king and made the court such a dissipated place, but also because he could ride better than they at tournaments and was used in his impudence to cut very bad jokes on them, calling one the old hog, another the stage player, another the Jew, Another, the black dog of Arden. This was as poor wit as need be, but it made those lords very wroth. And the surly Earl of Warwick, who was the black dog, swore that the time should come when Piers Gaveston should feel the black dog's teeth. It was not come yet, however nor did it seem to be coming. The king made him Earl of Cornwall and gave him vast riches, and when the king went over to France to marry the French princess Isabella, daughter of Philip le Bel, who was said to be the most beautiful woman in the world, he made Gaveston regent of the kingdom. His splendid marriage ceremony in the church of Her Lady at Boulogne where there were four kings and three queens present, quite a pack of court cards, for I dare say the knaves were not wanting. Being over, he seemed to care little or nothing for his beautiful wife, but was wild with impatience to meet Gaveston again. When he landed at home, he paid no attention to anybody else, but ran into the favourite's arms before a great concourse of people and hugged him and kissed him and called him his brother. At the coronation, which soon followed, Gaveston was the richest and brightest of all the glittering company there and had the honour of carrying the crown. This made the proud lords fiercer than ever The people, too, despised their favourite and would never call him Earl of Cornwall, however much he complained to the king and asked him to punish them for not doing so, but persisted in styling him plain 
Piers Gaveston. The barons were so unceremonious with the king in giving him to understand that they would not bear his favourite, that the king was obliged to send him out of the country. The favourite himself was made to take an oath, more oaths, that he would never come back, and the barons supposed him to be banished and disgraced until they heard that he was appointed governor of Ireland. Even this was not enough for the besotted king, who brought him home again in a year's time, and not only disgusted the court and the people by his doting folly, but offended his beautiful wife too, who never liked him afterwards. He had now the old royal wounds of money, and the barons had the new power of positively refusing to let him raise any. He summoned a parliament at York. The barons refused to make one. While the favourite was near him, he summoned another parliament at Westminster and sent Gaveston away. Then the barons came, completely armed, and appointed a committee of themselves to correct abuses in the state and in the king's household. He got some money on these conditions and directly set off with Gaveston to the border country, where they spent it in idling away the time and feasting, while Bruce made ready to drive the English out of Scotland. For, though the old king had made his poor weak son of his swear, as some say, that he would not bury his bones, but would have them boiled clean in a cauldron and carried before the English army until Scotland was entirely subdued. The second Edward was so unlike the first that Bruce gained strength and power every day. The Committee of Nobles after some months of deliberation, ordained that the king should henceforth call a parliament together, once every year, and even twice if necessary, instead of summoning it only when he chose. Further, that Gaveston should once more be banished, and this time on pain of death, if he ever came back. The king's tears were of no avail. He was obliged to send his favourite to Flanders. As soon as he had done so, however, he dissolved the parliament and the low cunning of a mere fool and set off to the north of England, thinking to get an army about him to oppose the nobles. And once again, he brought Gaveston home and heaped upon him all the riches and titles of which the barons had deprived him. The Lord saw now that there was nothing for it but to put the favourite to death. They could have done so legally, according to the terms of his banishment, but they did so, I'm sorry to say, in a shabby manner. Led by the Earl of Lancaster, the king's cousin, they first of all attacked the king and Gaveston at Newcastle. Their time to escape to sea, and the mean king, having his precious Gaveston with him, was quite content to leave his lovely wife behind. 
When they were comparatively safe, they separated. The king went to York to collect a force of soldiers, and the favourite shut himself up in the meantime in Scarborough Castle overlooking the sea. That was what the barons wanted. They knew that the castle could not hold out. They attacked it and made Gaveston surrender. He delivered himself up to the Earl of Pembroke, the lord whom he had called the Jew. On the Earl's pledging his faith and knightly word that no harm should happen to him and no violence be done him. Now... It was agreed with Gaveston that he should be taken to the castle of Wallingford and there kept in honourable custody. They travelled as far as Deddington, near Banbury, where in the castle of that place they stopped for a night to rest. Whether the Earl of Pembroke left his prisoner there, knowing what would happen, or really left him thinking no harm, as only going, as he pretended, to visit his wife, the Countess, who was in the neighbourhood, is no great matter now. In any case, he was bound as an honourable gentleman to protect his prisoner, and he did not do it. In the morning... While the favourite was yet in bed, he was required to dress himself and come down into the courtyard. He did so without any mistrust, but started and turned pale when he found it full of strange armed men. I think you know me, said their leader, also armed from head to foot. I am the black dog of our ten. The time was come when Pierce Gaveston was to feel the black dog's teeth and teeth. They set him on a mule and carried him in mock state and with military music to the black dog's kennel, Warwick Castle, where a hasty council, composed of some great noblemen, considered what should be done with him. Some were for sparing him, but one loud voice, it was the black dog's bark, I dare say, sounded through the castle hall, uttering these words. You have the fox in your power. Let him go now, and you must hunt him again. They sentenced him to death. He threw himself at the feet of the Earl of Lancaster, the old hog, but the old hog was as savage as the dog. He was taken out upon the pleasant road, leading from Warwick to Coventry, where the beautiful river Avon, by which long afterwards William Shakespeare was born and now lies buried, sparkled in the bright landscape of a beautiful May day, and there they struck off his wretched head and stained the dust with his blood. When the king heard of this black deed, in his grief and rage he denounced relentless war against his barons, and both sides were in arms for half a year. But it then became necessary for them to join their forces against Prince, who had used the time well while they were divided and had now a great power in Scotland. Intelligence was brought that Robert was then besieging Stirling Castle, and that the governor had been obliged to pledge himself to surrender it, 
until he should be relieved before a certain day. Hereupon, the king ordered the nobles and the fighting men to meet him at Berwick, but the nobles cared so little for the king and so neglected the summons and lost time that only on the day before they appointed for the surrender did the king find himself at Stirling, and even then with a smaller foes than he had expected. However, he had altogether a hundred thousand men, and Bruce had not more than forty thousand. But Bruce's army was strongly posted in three square columns on the ground lying between the burn or brook of Bannock and the walls of Stirling Castle. On the very evening when the king came up, Bruce did a brave act that encouraged his men. He was seen by a certain Henry de Bohun, an English knight, riding about before his army on a little horse with a little battle axe in his hand and a crown of gold on his head. This English knight, who was mounted on a strong war horse, cased in steel, strongly armed and able, as he thought, to overthrow Bruce by crushing him with his mere weight, set spurs to his great charger, rode on him and made a thrust at him with his heavy spear. Bruce parried the thrust and with one blow of his battle axe split his skull. The Scottish men did not forget this. Next day when the battle raged, Randolph, Bruce's valiant nephew, rode with a small body of men he commanded into such a host of the English, all shining in polished armour in the sunlight, that they seemed to be swallowed up and lost, as if they had plunged into the sea. But... They fought so well and did such dreadful execution that the English staggered. Then came Bruce himself upon them with all the rest of his army. While they were thus hard-pressed and amazed, there appearing upon the hills what they supposed to be a new Scottish army, but what were really only the camp followers in number 15,000 whom Bruce had taught to show themselves at that place and time. The Earl of Gloucester, commanding the English horse, made a last rush to change the fortune of the day, but Bruce, like Jack the Giant Killer in the story, had had pits dug in the ground and covered over turfs and stakes. Into these, as they gave way beneath the weight of the horses, riders and horses rolled by hundreds. The English were completely rooted, and their treasure, stoves and engines were taken by the Scottish men. So many wagons and other wheeled vehicles were seized that it is related that they would have reached if they had been drawn out in a line 180 miles. The fortunes of Scotland were, for the time, completely changed, and never was a battle won more famous upon Scottish ground than this great battle of Bannockburn. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.